decir. You have your Bible with you today. Will you turn with me to Isaiah 33? This will be our tenth of twelve sermons in this section from Isaiah 24 to 35. Where the text today is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. The word ah, which opens this text, is the sixth time we've heard the word hoy in Hebrew. It can mean woe, it can mean aha, it's a, just a kind of a statement of warning or surprise. Ah, you destroyer, you yourself have not, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you've ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed, and when you have finished betraying, They'll betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvations, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down they are burned in the f- that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly? who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They'll see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You'll see no more the insolent people. The people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the, hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey, and no inhabitant will say, I'm sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. And we ask you to bless it to our hearts, O Lord, in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, if there's... Any consensus about the times we're living in, in a time when it's very difficult to get consensus about much of anything, I think there would be consensus that these are times of trouble 
We are living in an increasingly unstable society. I think that's being felt pretty broadly. A society that is threatened not so much by external enemies, at least yet, as much as it is plagued and threatened by malignant forces within our society. I know you guys are paying attention. You can see clearly there are ideological battle lines that are being drawn. And more and more, those on the various sides of these lines see each other. They see the other side as a threat to their very existence. And so there's been a becoming in our country uh, and in our civilization more broadly, I think there's just a, a growing readiness out of that sense of threat to use desperate measures. Something I hear more and more throughout the last year is an urgency about urgency. Like if you're not urgent, if you're not taking things serious enough to get out and do something, you're part of the problem, that kind of urgency about urgency. And as I've listened and talked with many, many Christians here and far uh, over the last year, I, the Christians are they're being swept up in this. And I want to ask, and I'm sincerely asking, I'm not asking this as an accusation, there, as Christians are being swept up in all of this, is that as it should be? Now, Isaiah is preaching, you know this by now, if you've been following the series, Isaiah is preaching in a time when the threat to Israel's existence, so God's people before Jesus, they're the nation of Israel, and God, the threat to Israel, God's people, it, is, it couldn't be clearer. You know, we've talked about the fact that there, when, the, when, it, when this opens up talking about the destroyer, it's talking about the Assyrian war machine. And if you guys read any history about the Assyrians, these people were... You know, it's just hard to imagine the 21st century how ferocious, how cruel they could be to the people that they subjugated as they spread their empire westward. They had absolutely no regard for human rights. You were less than property to them if they overcame you. And they're right at the gates of Jerusalem now, threatening to smash the city and just do their worst. And Isaiah's preaching to the people of Israel in this time, and this is his sixth sermon in this particular series, and he opens this sixth sermon with a promise I mean, it's pretty bold. He just says, look, the threat's going to be destroyed. After the destroyer's done what its destroyer's going to do, they're going to be destroyed. The betrayer will be betrayed. And that would have been, you know, just kind of hard to believe, honestly, at the time. But the basis he gives for that promise is what I want you to notice in verse 6. The reason why he can so boldly say the destroyer's time is, it's got, there's, a, there's an expiration date on Assyria. The reason, the basis for that statement is that God, look at it in verse 6, look at it with me, God will be the stability of your times. If I had to summarize in one phrase what this entire series I'm trying to preach is really about, that's it. And that's what Isaiah's series is about. The reason why you can have hope and confidence and be unshakable in the face of something as awful as the Assyrian threat is that God will be the stability of your times. But I've got to tell you, I think that sounded as politically out of touch in Isaiah's time, as it does in our own. Had I been a courtier in King Hezekiah's court at the time, and I hear the prophet Isaiah preaching and saying, Hezekiah, you need to calm down, and you need to trust that Assyria, that monster machine outside your walls, is going to be destroyed because God is the stability of your times, I would have said, thank you, Isaiah. Now, about Assyria, we've got to do something about this. Let's get back to the real problem. You know, thanks for preaching. Let's get back to Monday work. God is the only stable reality that can give and will give stability. You know, that is still true. That is still true. But for many of us, don't you find that stays kind of theoretical? By which I mean, it doesn't really influence our action, our strategies, 
our priorities on the ground. So often when we're faced with a major threat, especially if it's big and kind of social and and society-wide, when times seem really unstable and and, and, and much is being shaken, our priorities on the ground, honestly, the things that we're busy thinking about and trying to get ready to do and actually putting into action, those things are not so much dictated by what it is God is doing, but the action on the ground tends to be dictated by what the enemy is doing. And that was true in Hezekiah's time. It's still true for us as evangelical Christians in the 21st century. It is not often, actually, that the simple truth that God is the stability of our times, he's got something he's doing here, we need to pay attention to what that is, that does not very often translate into the language that verse 6 uses. It doesn't translate into practical wisdom and knowledge. Rather, we tend to be very much in reaction mode against what the threat is. You know, for example, I wonder, would the alliance with Egypt, would Hezekiah's of alliance with Egypt, would it even have occurred if Hezekiah and his nation had been totally confident in what God was doing, they were discerning what God was doing, they were responding to what God was doing, would they have allied themselves with Egypt? The answer is no, but it made perfect sense politically to ally themselves with Egypt. That's why I say it remains theoretical, this reality that God is the stability of our times. And so what I'm hoping to do for a few minutes today is kind of give us a fresh baptism together in the Godness of God, which does tend to remain theoretical. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure, but the fear of God tends to be like up on a shelf, and then there's the real world on the ground. But I want to get it off the shelf. So let's listen as Isaiah today, he talks to us about two things. First of all, he gives us in verses 7 through 12, a picture of godlessness And then in verses 13 through 24, he gives us a picture of life with God. So I'm actually going to spend a few minutes here talking about this picture of godlessness, because against this background, what he says about life with God more briefly will make sense. So you'll notice, if you guys had to like sum up in a sentence what verses 7 through 12 picture, like what would it be? This is a picture of just ruin. It's a picture of highways that are vacant, Broken covenants, cities despised, a mourning land, people conceiving their own chaff and stubble with which they will be consumed by fire. What's going on here? What's going on in Isaiah's time? Well, let me start with this. This is a picture of godlessness. Now, there was a certain simplicity to ancient pagan godlessness. Back in Isaiah's time. The pagan world. There was a certain simplicity about godlessness in those times. Because if you think about those times, you probably read about them in your history books. Having turned away from the true and living God, the nations made gods for themselves. Right? They just made up their own gods. And you had big nations with big gods. And you had little nations with little gods. And international relations were fairly straightforward. International relations were basically about power differentials. The big nations with the big gods smashed the little nations with the little gods. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like you didn't need a lot of political theory here. The strong ruled the weak. That's just how it was. My God can smash your God, so which basically means my war machine can smash you. And that was just, it was simple. That, that, that same, like just work it out with the power differentials, that same thing actually applied a lot on the domestic front, which is kind of true of human life in general. And what you see flowed out of that godlessness in verse 8 in particular, is just a lot of ruin. It's such a powerful little phrase. There is no regard for man. People had no inherent value. If you were an Assyrian and you conquered the land of Egypt, Egyptians were, they were 
I don't, I, there's a word I can use. I can't use it in the pulpit. They were just not, they were garbage to you. You could do as you pleased with them, no matter how cruel it might be. But the other thing you notice about godlessness, it wasn't just that it produced a lot of ruin. You'll notice in verse 11, godlessness was self-defeating. What does God mean when he arises and he says these nations are conceiving stubble and they're breathing out threatenings against others, becomes the fire that actually consumes the stubble they've brought forth? It's a picture of that godlessness in those days was self-defeating. Those who lived by the sword would die by the sword. It was always the case the powerful eventually were overpowered by the more powerful. And what God's saying in the opening verses of this chapter is Assyria is not going to be any different. The destroyer will end up being destroyed. The ruthless will end up being betrayed. Assyria, like Babylon after them, and Medo-Persia after them, and Greece after them, and Rome after them, and the, you know, other nations after them, they are going to be consumed by their own war-making, God says. But let's jump to the 21st century. Because I think as modern readers, we, we think about the ancient pagan world, and we look at a text like this, and I think actually a lot of Christians look at a text like this, and we, you know, we think we live in a more enlightened time. I mean, we really do. Let's be honest. We're pompous in the modern world. We think we've gotten over so much silliness of our foreparents. We don't live in days when people are cool with domination and subjugation and you know, exploiting other peoples and colonialism and all of that. We don't live in those days anymore. We live in a time where the, the buzzwords are liberation and you know, self-expression and respecting rights. And so, you know, it's, so what, what, and, and it's true, actually. There's been a lot of progress in the world in some ways. And so, but the impression that we have then is that somehow in 2020, the fruit of godlessness is going to be different. You guys tracking with me? Like that was what ancient pagan godlessness produced. A lot of ruin and it was very self-defeating. But somehow because we're in more progressed times, now the fruit of godliness isn't going to quite look like that. I mean, it's not going to produce just all this rubble and ruin. You know, you see that kind of rubble and ruin in sort of backward nations maybe, but not, not you know, in enlightened, among enlightened peoples in our time. Godlessness now is sophisticated. It's got science behind it. It's well thought out. It doesn't end up being self-defeating like those old war machines. Godlessness, godlessness now is stable. That's the impression we have. And I think that that impression, that godlessness now, because it's more advanced, is, is stable, I think that explains perhaps what I can only describe as a failure of nerve among Christians in the last year. I think right now, as godlessness is surging all over the place in our society, it's powerful, it's well-funded, it's in many ways fairly well-reasoned in a certain sense, and it's just exploding. What I hear when I talk with a lot of Christians is they cannot see what an opportunity this is. They cannot see what an opportunity this is. They do not discern that we are living in a moment of glorious opportunity to show what life built on the rock looks like when everything else is water and sand. They don't see that. What I hear among Christians right now is a lot of panic. Some of it is militant panic. Some of it is separatist panic. Let's go build a ghetto because of all these godless agendas with all their power and funding and all the intellect and all of that, I hear a lot of panic. 
On, in other circles, I hear a lot of, I see a lot of energy to make sure we form the right alliances that can spare us from falling out of power, which I think is a lost cause in many respects for Christians in this country. But, you know, there's still a sense that, you know, we don't want to lose power because you can't lose power and get anything done. Or there's a fear that we're going to fall out of favor with those in power. So, you know, we're making all these alliances. And I just, you know, that whatever value all that has, here's what I want to say to you guys today. The priority, you with me? The priority for stable Christians, the priority for stable Christians is to do this. We need to learn how to patiently, graciously unmask the instability of 21st century godlessness. As much as what Isaiah is looking at here in this portrait of godliness in the ancient pagan world, as much as then, so now, 21st century godlessness is demonstrably self-defeating. It does bring ruin. It has already brought ruin. And it will continue to show its inherent contradictions, its inherent foundational weaknesses. And it is our job as God's people with love and cheerfulness and the neighborly spirit to simply unmask, both by our lives and by our explanations, the instability of the godlessness of our time. And what I want to do for the next couple of minutes, because I think that could sound very academic and theoretical somehow still, I want to give you just one example. And I want this to be a kind of thought experiment. I'm going to just devote a minute or two to it, because I'd like you to just think with me for a moment about one way in which godlessness in our time, this acid of godlessness, actually feeds on itself. If you don't have God, what happens in the 20th century, 21st century? Think about this. Here's the one example, and then we'll move on. You guys know very well, if you're, if, unless you live under a very big rock, that the rallying, two of the major rallying cries of our time are fairness and freedom. Probably, there probably are no two bigger things in the minds of people today than fairness and freedom. Societal fairness, by that we mean we want to eliminate every differential of power and privilege. Right? The buzzword now is equity. That's the goal, societal fairness. And individual freedom on the individual level. Freedom means you remove every obstacle to satisfying your desires, right? And those are, that's what we want. Now, this is what is interesting if you start to think about this. Now, you might say you're getting away from the text. No, I'm not. This, I want to show you how what we see here in this picture that Isaiah gives us, it's still happening today. Think about fairness and freedom as I've just described it. You know, for all of our enthusiasm about those branches up in the tree, what people don't see is, and it's actually kind of shocking, our blindness now, is how we have sawed away from the only trunk that can support things like fairness and freedom. Do you have confidence in that as a Christian? Can you say that confidently? That without God, you've actually sawed yourself away from the only trunk that can support freedom and fairness? Let's think about freedom for a minute. There's been a very curious progression in the last, let's say, 100 years. It's a given now for the 21st century mind that we reject any authoritative God. You may still be a religious person. I think the word now is, I'm spiritual. But the idea of an authoritative God who gets in your business and tells you what to do, that is incompatible in our minds with freedom. So he's out. That God is out. Now, think about what that, where that leaves people. Think about where that leaves some of your neighbors you love. If you have no authoritative God, you have no, there's nothing beyond the world, there's just this world, then where that leaves you as a person is this. You have to secure your happiness here and now. Unlike those silly religious people of ancient times, you can't anchor your happiness outside the world. 
you can't, what are you doing laying up treasure in heaven? What does that even mean? You surely can't anchor your happiness in a world to come or a life to come. You need to get what you can here and now because that's your one shot, man. That's, that's godlessness. Now, what, think about where that leaves people. Let's keep moving through the progression. So you've got to have it all here and now. That's your only shot. What that means is it is a matter of urgency. It is crucial then, if that's where I am as an individual, that means it's crucial that my society, the people I'm living with, the society I'm a part of, they had better respect my rights. They'd better enable my choices. They'd better affirm my feelings and feed my appetites. I turn to the world now, and I've got a lot to acquire, and a lot to experience, and a lot to feel, and a lot to consume, and a lot to get done, and I've got a right to do it, and so I need a society that is cooperative. Thank you very much. And so we turn to society to respect our rights, enable our choices, affirm our feelings, feed our appetites. And so what we then have is a society that is being, and has been now for at least a century, it's a society that's been really reconfigured. In older times, the various kinds of society we enjoyed, starting with the family, these were relationships in which we come into the world and we are formed in wisdom and virtue. There's a certain way humans are to become. There's a certain kind of maturity and virtue and goodness. There are values. There are certain norms for what a, a strong, healthy you know, good person is, and, and society would, you know, various kinds of society would basically form us toward wisdom and virtue. That's out. We've reconfigured society now to be a place in which human desires and human feelings, think about what goes on now. We have created an entire society that in many ways is busy technologically analyzing, bureaucratically managing and let us be honest, commercially monetizing human needs and desires and feelings. A whole society built around, a whole industry built around technologically analyzing, bureaucratically managing, commercially monetizing human needs, desires, feelings. And what that creates is a very ironic, but let us again be honest, very lucrative dependence of the individual on society. As one philosopher put it, politics has replaced religion as the source of hope, the source of protection, the source of provision, even the source of individual identity. But it's far worse for freedom. It's not just that the individual is increasingly dependent on this industrial society that does all of this. It's worse, far worse than that, because that same rejection of God that quote-unquote freed individuals also freed political power. There is a myth that says the opposite of freedom is authority. That is a myth. The opposite of freedom is the power that operates when there is no authority. The same power, the same emancipation of the individual from God also emancipated any political power from any higher transcendent authority to which that political power must ultimately answer. 
There are, in a world without God, there are no ultimate values. There are no transcendent norms. There are no transcendent values. There are only natural forces. I want you to really think about that. This is the, this is the thing, this is the snake in the wood pile in the 21st century. If there's no God, there are no transcendent values. There are only natural forces. That's all there is. And there are no ethics among forces. You can only manage them. The Italian philosopher Augusto del Noce said this in 1975, shockingly prophetic. The rejection of authority understood in its metaphysical religious foundation. Rejection of authority leads instead to the fullness of power. It is hard to deny, at least on the basis of our current experience, he was writing in the 70s, it's hard to deny that the real endpoint, regardless of the intentions, of the process of revolutionary liberation leads to the complete dependence of man on society. Now listen to these chilling next words. We are approaching a time when it will be normal to think that man is entitled to exist in as much as he is socially useful. That is, in as much as others judge him to be so. What of fairness? What of fairness? What of obligation to my neighbor? Things should be fair. Why? In a godless framework, why should they be fair? See, if there's no God, then you have no divine image, and neither do I. You are not made in God's image because there's no God, and I'm not made in God's image because there's no God. And what that means is you and I do not share God's image. Let that sink in for a moment. You have no inherent worth because there's no one to give you inherent worth. And because you have no inherent worth and I have no inherent worth, you and I have no shared baseline in relating with each other. That if you have inherent worth and I have inherent worth, then our shared inherent worth becomes the basis, the baseline from which we can begin to work out our relationship with one another. That is gone. And in a world that is godless, each human being has only the relative worth that others choose to assign. There is no other basis for the value of humans. They, you must, people have to assign you value, which is why we're all screaming in the public square now for people to give us an identity, to affirm our identity, because there's this deep vacuum of identity because there is no inherent worth. You are useful to me. That's your only worth to me. When you cease to be useful, you have no worth. Or you belong to my tribe, you belong to our tribe, and therefore I have a certain something I share with you, so you matter to me, those outside my tribe, why should they matter? I really, really have to ask this question in our time. Why not exploit the needs and desires of other human beings if it's profitable to do so? Why not? Why not? Why share resources with the outgroup? Why should I give a flying cabbage about the outgroup? Tell me why. Why should I cede power to the outgroup in a godless world? Why not demonize the outgroup? Why not make war with the outgroup? This is nature. I want to read you a few lines from the incomparably brilliant Simone Weil, who wrote in 1943 a document called A Draft for a Statement of Human Obligations. Listen to these words. She just comes right at it. There is a reality outside the world, outside space and time, 
outside man's mental universe, outside any sphere accessible to human faculties. Corresponding to this reality, at the center of the human heart is the longing for an absolute good. A longing which is always there and is never appeased by any object in this world. As the reality of this world is the sole foundation of facts, so that other reality is the sole foundation of good. That reality is the unique source of all the good that can exist in this world. That is to say, all beauty, all truth, all justice, all legitimacy, all order, and all human behavior that is mindful of obligations. This is the only possible motive for universal respect towards all human beings. If a man's heart inclines him to feel this respect, then he, in fact, also recognizes a reality other than this world's reality. Now listen to the next line. This gets directly at fairness. She says, It is impossible to feel equal respect for things that are, in fact, unequal, unless the respect is given to something that's identical in all of them. Let me read that again. It's impossible to feel equal respect for things that are, in fact, unequal unless that respect is given to something that is identical in all of them. Men are unequal in all their relations with the things of this world without exception. The only thing that is identical in all men is the presence of a link with the reality outside this world. That is a stunningly profound thing to say. The only thing that is identical in all men is the presence of a link with the reality outside the world. Only by really directing the attention beyond the world can there be real contact with this central and essential fact of human nature, unquote. Our social problems are spiritual problems. That is why God must be the stability of our times, and there is no other stability. There is no political solution to godlessness. You find a solution only in recovering capital T truth, capital G goodness, that requires the reality of God. That's what stable Christians need to be focusing on. That's a picture of of godlessness. Far more briefly, but do stick with me here, I want then against that backdrop just to show you quickly a picture of life with God in verses 13 through 24. How different, how stable this life with God. You know, initially, it's actually deeply destabilizing. It doesn't begin well, does it? But this is a good thing. Because anytime you're going to live with God, if you're going to have God, if he's going to be a real thing, and not just, you know, like a little religious thing that you kind of, you know, doff your cap to on Christmas and Easter, God is real. He is in your business. You've got to live with him. You're going to immediately encounter and always encounter two things, the demands of his holiness and the provisions of his grace. And that's what you see right here. You see the demands of holiness in verses 14 through 16. This is why we reject God. This is why, look, man, I, sometimes I don't want God in my life. This is why. Who can dwell with a consuming fire? That's the problem. You can have God in your life. He made you, and you've rebelled against him. Wow, there's some good news. (laughs) You need to repent. You need to be restored on his terms. Wow, who wants to hear that? That's destabilizing. God sets the standard. You're out of the throne. No, I, I said it wrongly. God doesn't set the standard. God is the standard. His righteousness, his holiness, that's what you've got to live up to. That's life with God. Now, the standard is so good. You look at verses 15 and 16. What does God want his people to be? Oh, you know, proud, bigoted, self-righteous, you know, judgmental. No. 
God wants his people to walk righteously, speak uprightly, shake your hands lest you ever hold a bribe, hate oppression, do justice, love mercy, shut your eyes from looking on evil. That's what God wants, because that's how God is. This is a high calling. We were made, oh my, can you say this in the 21st century? We were made to find fulfillment in doing others good. The problem is with us, which is why the prospect of living with God is frightening, terrifying. How can we ever live with him? How can we ever attain those ideals? Those are the demands of holiness. But right on the heels of the demand for holiness is the simple provision of grace, beginning in verse 17. Here's the gospel, dear saints. Never forget it. What God demands, God provides. That's the gospel. And God tells his people, in terror of his consuming holiness, he's going to one day, from Isaiah's time, he's going to one day set the world to rights through a beautiful coming king. God is the stability of Isaiah's times. He is preparing in those dark days with Assyria pounding on the gates. God is preparing the way for the Messiah. God is still the stability of our times because now through Messiah, he is building his kingdom in the world. We are living in the age of Messiah's reign. And notice as the reign of Messiah is described here, how God makes it possible through Messiah for us sinners to live in peace with the consuming fire and to be conformed to his fiery righteousness. Notice what the king does. You'll you'll muse in those days on what happened to the terror. What happened to the enemy? Because there's going to come a time when, you know, Assyria is small potatoes and Babylon small potatoes, even Rome small potatoes. God is going to crush the ancient enemy of God's people, the serpent himself. You're going to no longer see the insolent enemy. And in verse 20, what God's going to do after he's crushed the serpent is he's going to then form a people, form a living city whose lives are full of peace. Jerusalem, when Messiah reigns, is going to be a people who are untroubled in their habitation and are immovable in their tent. Because in that city where God and his majesty, verse 21, is like we're living with broad rivers that are calm and no warships can come on these waters, God in that city is our judge, God is our lawgiver, God is our king. That's why we have peace. But you're back to the question, well, how can it be that we can live with this holy God as our judge, lawgiver, and king and not be consumed? And the answer in verses 23 and 24 is because we now know through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as he, the God-man, took our sin upon himself and endured and exhausted God's curse upon that sin, there is no more debt to be paid. And as he offered to God throughout his life and death, he offered to God the perfect obedience that we could never even begin to scrape together with our filthy rags. And he presented that to the Father. And the Father was perfectly pleased with his perfect obedience as the one who represented us. Out of that death and resurrection, as he rose from the grave, having crushed our sin and our death, what the Isaiah prophesies here, those will be the times when God will have forgiven the iniquity of his people. God heals their diseases. They will no longer say, I am sick. I'm not sick. Jesus has healed me. I'm forgiven. I am loved. I am whole. And then, you will have ships on these waters. And they're kind of lame ships. 
You want, the, you want a navy like this? Their cords are so loose they can't even hold the mast firm or spread the sails out. These are lame, lame people. But those lame are going to divide the spoil and the prey. Because God who takes the weak and the broken and the sinful and the unworthy is going to empower them by his Holy Spirit. He's going to give them strength to do what they cannot do on their own. To fight the battles of the Lord. To do good in the name of their God. To become indeed princes of this new nation. Reconciled to God by his mercy and forgiveness. They will begin to learn and be empowered and energized by God's Spirit. To overcome evil with good. To do justice. To love mercy to make peace. That's the age of Messiah's reign. That's what God will do in his people. That's stability. Well, there's more to the sermon. Two more chapters and then we'll be done on Christmas Sunday. But for now, I just want to say this again. If I have one thing I would so love to get together on as a church, dear saints, it is that we are living in a moment of tremendous opportunity. Do you know why I say that? Because stability is revealed in instability. A rock never looks so good as when everything around you is surging waters. Stability is revealed in instability. And in our times of instability, God is the stability of our times. We need to be less preoccupied with Assyria and Egypt and all the rest And we need to be devoting ourselves for real and getting practical with this. Devote ourselves to studying and practicing the stability of God. That is the mission and mandate for the 21st century church. You want to go there? Me too. So lead the way, Lord. Lead the way. Jesus, we pray. Amen.